And so, Bifab is in administration, and separately, the order of two ferries for Calmac has been described as a catastrophic failure. Inquiries are now being demanded amid calls to save jobs in Burnt Island, Greenock and Lewis. brought the second wave of COVID, Nicola Sturgeon says, don't travel. Fire exams are cancelled next year. It's over to teachers to assess their students. And down to the wire, the Brexit talks are extended again. From Caledonia Media, I'm Charles Fletcher with Scotland's favourite political show, The Week in Holyrood. I must tell the House that our friends are currently, our friends in the EU, are currently insisting that... uh, If they pass a new law in the future uh, with which we in this country do not comply or don't follow suit, then they want the automatic right, uh, Mr Speaker, to to punish us and uh, to retaliate. And secondly, they're saying that the UK should be the only country in the world not to have sovereign control over its fishing waters. And I don't believe, Mr Speaker, that those are terms that any Prime Minister of this country uh, should accept. Martin Va, Fiskema. First, to Brexit. And Sunday is now the latest deadline for securing a deal between Britain and the European Union. The Prime Minister went to Brussels on Wednesday evening for a working dinner with the European Commission President, Ursula van der Leyen. Large gaps remain between the UK and the EU. The European Commission has put contingency plans in place to keep planes flying and goods being transported between the continent and the UK in case the talks collapse. Here's Newsnight's political editor, Nick Watt. David Frost, the UK's chief negotiator, he will resume those talks with Michel Barnier. But I have to say, listen to this sort of language from a number 10 source. Very large gaps remain between the two sides and it's still unclear whether they can be uh, bridged. Talking about how the Prime Minister doesn't want to leave any route to a possible deal untested, so he wants to give it uh, one last go. Talking around the system, I'm hearing uh, language like, well, it went well enough to continue the talks. If it had gone disastrously badly, they would not have continued. But ultimately, I'm hearing they're saying we've got to be realistic about are we really going to get there, saying that it's going to be a tricky few days and they're absolutely not certain that they will give there. Ursula von der Leyen, the European Commission president, she has tweeted, we understand each other's positions. They remain far apart. And do we know the actual sticking points? Can you sort of spell them out for us in layman's terms? Well, as I understand it, Boris Johnson uh, went to Brussels with two thoughts in his mind. Firstly, he wanted Ursula von der Leyen to sort of act as an honest broker between Angela Merkel and Emmanuel Macron, who clearly have very different views on this. And the issue that he was particularly concerned about is the level playing field. This is, can you sort of agree how you will abide by common standards? And as I understand it, what he was going to say to the Commission President is you need to wind the clock back 10 days because the UK view is that they were in the right place on that. They had about 85% of a deal 10 days ago and then what happened they say and this was reported in the Times on Saturday is Michel Barnier was in self-isolation a key aide to Ursula von der Leyen who used to work with Michel Barnier was put into the talks got them into that right place Mm. Michel Barnier came back and they say he didn't like it and he moved it to a different position so the two positions the position that the UK was happy with was what is called a non-regression agreement that means that the UK would say we will not lower the current standards on labour law on environmental standards where we are now. The problem was they say that the position then hardened to something much closer towards something called dynamic alignment, which would mean that as the EU changes laws, we would have to go with them. Prime Minister talked about this in the Commons. If we didn't, they would punish us. And there was talk about how the EU was asking for us to agree to a tariff schedule. You do this, this tariff will be imposed. And what we were looking for was something much more akin to a sort of a joint uh, dispute mechanism. Now sleeves are rolling up for a vaccine. The Covid challenge 
is underway. This is a really significant moment and I think after a pretty rough and miserable year for everybody it's an optimistic moment. I've just been in the clinic with the staff who will both be vaccinated uh, tomorrow and then we'll start to vaccinate others. I'm not going to uh, pretend that in common with governments across the UK we don't have a massive logistical exercise on our hands. Uh, We are going to be vaccinating over the next few months significant numbers of people The first vaccine to be authorised is not the easiest vaccine to transport and store and administer. So there's big challenges there, but we've got lots of people working really hard to get it right. And it's emerged the second wave of the virus in Scotland was triggered by summer holidays abroad. A genetic study of virus samples reveals travel-associated imports, mainly from other parts of Europe, but also the UK, seeded the current epidemic. Nicola Sturgeon admits she should have been much tougher on travel restrictions. I think the findings of these reports, which obviously uh, are being reported to Sage formally, I've had an awareness that this is was the emerging sort of findings out of the genomic sequencing for some time. Uh, now I've you know sort of made references publicly to to the fact that we think and actually uh, sort of been. Uh, I don't know if this is the right word, but it's the only one that comes to mind right now, in some quarters ridiculed for saying this earlier in the year, that we did come very close to eliminating the virus in Scotland in the summer, and then it was reseeded from travel. And I think when I first made that point, which was informed by some of the genomic sequencing work that I knew was underway, I got accused by some of trying to be divisive and, and you know stop people travelling from, uh, from Scotland to England. So... It's none of that. It's just being very, very aware of what the the greatest risks of uh, the virus spreading are and trying to act on the basis of the best knowledge we have in in ways that are most effective at stopping that. So that that kind of developing understanding that we've had in recent weeks has already made us take a much more rigorous approach to travel restrictions as we've uh, applied the levels in the second wave and you know, we decided uh, a couple of weeks ago to put those restrictions in law, both for travel within Scotland and travel between Scotland and the rest of the UK. And I've, you know, and, and this is absolutely legitimate. I'm not complaining about it, but I've probably had more political criticism uh, for doing these kind of things, including criticism from uh, sections of the media, than for many other things in the course of, of the pandemic. Um, but I think these reports that we're talking about today demonstrate why controlling travel particularly when the virus is spreading quite uh, quite vigorously, is a, a vital and essential way of trying to both get it under control and keep it under control. And it is going to have to continue to be one of the things that we have in our consideration as we go through, hopefully, the, the final stage of this pandemic. The First Minister says, for now, we should hold back on booking a summer holiday next year. Scotland's National Clinical Director, Professor Jason Leach, says this is a cautionary tale and encourages people to stay local over Christmas. We've said many times from here, apolitically, that one of the key interventions in an infectious agent spread is, is travel. I mean, if, you, if you have a classroom with a measles outbreak, you wouldn't let that classroom travel to a classroom that has no measles. It's as simple as that. It could be Elgin that has the infection. It could be Scotland. It could be the UK. You, you, you have to decide where to draw the travel lines. That's not a decision for me. But I can tell you that if you move people from an area with infection to an area without it, you are likely to seed the infection into it. And that's what we've done now twice in Scotland. That's how the first wave reached us, inevitably, because it started in China, came through mainland Europe, came to the UK. And now we know that the second wave, in the main, not entirely, in the main, came from newly imported cases into the UK and into Scotland, from Europe and from further afield. It, I mean, it's a basic public health standard piece of advice. And it's not, you know, it works both ways. It may well we be took, that we've taken it to we other did. countries as well. We so this is not about, oh, other countries bringing it to Scotland. We will have taken it to other countries too. And I, you know, sometimes when I talk about this, maybe I don't uh, get that two-way part of the, uh, the the process here across as well as I should, because obviously I'm thinking about protecting Scotland as much as, as I can. But it, it does cut both ways. So... Every time one of us travels to another part of Scotland or another part of the UK, we are risking taking it there as well as risking 
bringing it back. So, you know, it's just one of these things that we all have to be mindful of. Well, this week, the First Minister revealed the changes in tier levels for all of us. Eleven local authorities in west-central Scotland come down from four to three. That will still have a significant impact on lives as the restrictions are tight. Too tight for Edinburgh, where MSPs, MPs and the Council are demanding a reduction from Tier 3 to Tier 2. The First Minister is not for budging. She says politicians prefer to make popular decisions. Making difficult ones that people don't like are harder. But the fact she isn't seeking popularity should tell it all. No politician wants to take unpopular decisions. Uh, So the fact that I'm taking decisions sometimes that are not popular in particular areas should maybe lead you to think that I really do think these are necessary decisions. I'm not taking them lightly. And so to those new levels or tiers across Scotland, let's go into the chamber at the Scottish Parliament to join the First Minister. We mustn't at this stage drop our guard. Uh, For now, the virus and the risks it poses to health and life unfortunately remain with us. Indeed, we can expect the winter period ahead to be especially tough. As the vaccination programme rolls out across the country, the NHS will be coping with the impact of COVID and other winter pressures. And of course, we may also be dealing with any disruption caused by Brexit, the terms of which are still unclear. So we have no grounds at all for complacency about the months ahead and we have every good reason still to do everything we can to keep ourselves and our loved ones safe. Given the welcome decrease in rates of COVID across the Level 4 areas, I can therefore confirm that the City of Glasgow, Renfrewshire and East Renfrewshire, East and West Dumbartonshire, North and South Lanarkshire, East and South Ayrshire, Stirling and West Lothian will all exit Level 4 on Friday. We do hope to see case numbers in these areas continue to decline for another week or so as a result of the Level 4 restrictions. However, there's no doubt that the easing of restrictions that the exit from Level 4 involves will give the virus more opportunities to spread. In light of that, we have decided to take a cautious approach and apply Level 3 protections to all of these local authority areas for a period. We will observe the data carefully before determining in the weeks ahead uh, if and when those 11 local authorities should move to Level 2. When we introduced Level 4 restrictions, we said they would be lifted at 6pm on Friday 11th December. That remains the case with one exception. Retail premises which have been closed under Level 4 restrictions will be permitted to reopen from 6am on Friday. This is intended to help stores and shopping centres better manage the flow of customers after the period of closure. Presiding officer, I would take this opportunity to appeal to everyone living in level four areas to continue to exercise care and caution. As we know from our experience of COVID so far, progress can very, very easily go into reverse. So please continue to abide by the rules. That means in particular not visiting other people's houses. And as I will confirm later, travel restrictions will remain in place uh, for the next period. So travel in and out of level three areas uh, will still not be permitted. There are currently 10 local authorities in level three, uh, Angus, Clackmanninshire, Dundee, City of Edinburgh, Falkirk, Fife, Inverclyde, Midlothian, North Ayrshire and Perth and Kinross. Uh, Seven of these areas will remain in level three. Uh, These are Clackmanninshire, Dundee, City of Edinburgh, Fife, Midlothian, North Ayrshire and Perth and Kinross. I want to make a particular brief mention of Clackmanninshire. Case numbers there have risen sharply in recent days, although its case positivity remains well below the national average. We are confident at this stage that the rise in case numbers can be attributed to the mass testing pilot uh, that has been underway there. In other words, the issue is more cases being identified rather than a rise in transmission. Obviously, we will keep this under review, but we have decided that a change of level would not be merited at this point. However, I am pleased uh, to say uh, that there are three areas that will move down to level two from Friday. These are Inverclyde, Falkirk and Angus. All three have reduced and now have relatively lowly rates of transmission. Although Falkirk's have increased very slightly in recent days, but it has not changed our judgment that all three meet the criteria for moving into level two. We have also looked very carefully at whether Edinburgh should move to level two at this stage. Edinburgh is currently recording 68 cases per 100,000, which is below the Scotland-wide average. Its test positivity levels are also relatively low. However, cases in Edinburgh have risen slightly in recent days. 
There seems also to have been an increase in East Lothian and Mid Lothian. Also, the imminence of the Christmas period has had an impact on our thinking. A move to level two in Edinburgh would mean opening up significantly more services in our second biggest city in the two weeks before Christmas. That move would carry significant uh, risk of increased transmission. And for that reason, we want as much assurance as possible that the situation is as stable as possible before making that move. For that reason, uh, and this has been a difficult decision, we have decided not to move Edinburgh to level two this week, but we will consider this again next week for both Edinburgh and Midlothian. At the moment, there are six local authorities at level two, Aberdeen City, Aberdeen Shire, Argyll and Butte, the borders Dumfries and Galloway and East Lothian. Both Dumfries and Galloway and the Scottish borders have had consistently low levels of COVID for some weeks now. In Dumfries and Galloway, there were 23 cases per 100,000 in the last week and in the borders, 35. We have therefore concluded that both of these areas will move from level two to level one from 6pm on Friday. I said in last week's statement that we were looking closely at both Aberdeen and Aberdeenshire following an increase in cases in both of those areas. In the last week, cases have fallen in both areas. Aberdeen has gone from 89 new cases per 100,000 to 74. Aberdeenshire's case numbers, uh, by the same measure, have decreased from 95 to 80. And case positivity in both areas has also fallen and is at or slightly over 4%. For that reason, at this stage, uh, we intend that both areas will remain at level 2. It is worth stressing, though, that cases haven't fallen in either area by as much as we would want to see. And there is still evidence that the levels of infection are due to transmission in the community rather than solely being due to outbreaks in workplaces and care homes. We are therefore continuing to monitor the situation in both local authorities very carefully. I cannot rule out a move to level three for one or both of these areas in the weeks ahead. Uh, my message in both areas, as indeed it is for all parts of the country, is that the only way to stay at uh, the current level and then possibly, hopefully, to move down further is to suppress the virus as effectively as possible. Both local authorities have assured us that they will continue to work with local public health teams to do that. The Scottish Government, of course, uh, will do all we can to help and it's also vital that local businesses and local communities continue to play a full part in those efforts. Uh, East Lothian and Argyll and Butte will also both remain at level two for now. It's worth mentioning that Argyll and Butte has also seen a very sharp rise in cases in recent days. However, we are confident at this stage that this reflects a large workplace outbreak and is not indicative of wider community transmission. But again, we will continue to monitor that situation carefully. Um, and lastly, Presiding Officer, I can confirm that Highland, Murray, Orkney, Shetland and the Western Isles will all remain in level one. And of course, from Friday, the borders and Dumfries and Galloway will also go to level one. From Friday, there will also be a relatively small change to the rules for household gatherings on some islands in the Level 1 uh, local authority areas. At the moment, the island local authorities, Orkney, Shetland and the Western Isles, are the only places in Scotland where it is permitted for six people from two households to meet in houses. Uh, from 6pm on Friday, that will be extended to other inhabited islands in the Level 1 local authorities, with the exception of islands like Skye that are connected to mainland Scotland by road. However, those of us living in the rest of the country should continue to stay out of each other's houses. I know this is really tough, but it does remain the most effective way of stopping the virus spreading from one household to another. Presiding officer, the overall result of today's changes is that 16 local authorities will move to a lower level of restrictions from Friday. The rest will remain at the same level. That is good news. It reflects the fact that the number of cases in Scotland has been falling in recent weeks. However, I know it involves real and continued difficulties for many businesses, particularly in the hospitality sector. I can therefore confirm that the Finance Secretary will be setting out tomorrow a further package of business support intended to provide additional help over the winter. We will also be considering in the next couple of weeks whether any changes to the content of different levels, particularly as they affect hospitality, can safely be made. And more generally, as I've said before, moving any area down a level is not a neutral act. Because it allows some restrictions to be lifted, it does present more opportunities for the virus to spread. So it therefore presents real risks. And so I would ask everyone, especially in those areas that are moving down a level, to continue to do everything they can to keep uh, themselves and their loved ones safe. Be careful and cautious. Follow all the rules that are in place 
and still please try to limit your interactions with others as much as possible. It may be counterintuitive, but as restrictions ease, caution actually becomes more important, not less. Travel restrictions, which will remain in place, continue to be a vital part of keeping the country safe with a targeted and proportionate approach to restrictions. So nobody in a Level 3 area or until Friday a Level 4 area should travel outside their local authority area except for very specific purposes and no one should travel into Level 3 or 4 areas unless for essential purposes too. I'm afraid that means, for example, that people from outside Glasgow must not travel to the city to do Christmas shopping when retail opens on Friday. Presiding officer, today, the day when the first people have been vaccinated against this horrible virus, is a day and should be a day of optimism for all of us. But it marks, we hope, the beginning of the end of the pandemic. Unfortunately, the end is not quite with us yet. So all of us must continue to think about how we keep ourselves and each other safe in the meantime. Many of us in the weeks ahead will face choices about when and whether we meet friends indoors in a pub or cafe and about how we celebrate Christmas. Some people will decide that their well-being or the well-being of someone they love is best served by meeting indoors. I understand that. It's why the rules over the Christmas period recognise this inevitability and give advice on how to stay as safe as possible. But some of us will decide to take other options, for example, by seeing loved ones outdoors or postponing a family Christmas gathering until the spring or summer of next year. Uh, there is a beautiful statement by the Irish poet Seamus Heaney that was much quoted in the early days of the pandemic that I think sums up the situation we are in now extremely well. If we winter this one out, we can summer anywhere. That's a sentiment, I suspect, that resonates with many of us more strongly now than at any previous time in the pandemic. The route back to something much closer to normal life is clearer and closer now than at any time since March, and we are all looking forward to reaching that point. But we are not quite there yet, and so our priority must be on doing everything we can to ensure that when we do reach that point, all of our loved ones are there with us. Labour's Richard Leonard is far from convinced on the tier levels across Scotland. The First Minister's decisions make for a caustic head-to-head -head between them. The decisions being made on tiers are complex, uh, but looking at some of the data today, people find it difficult to understand how the First Minister and the Cabinet have arrived at some of these conclusions. In Stirling, for example, the most recent data shows that there are 81 cases per 100,000 people. In Western Bartonshire, there are now 76 cases per 100,000, and they are both being moved to Level 3. Yet, in Argyll and Butte, there are 165 cases per 100,000, and they have been and are still staying at Level 2. And why is Edinburgh staying at Level 3 when the data clearly shows that the infection is under greater control in the City of Edinburgh than in other parts of the country. So people want the evidence. Public cooperation during this pandemic operates on the basis of public trust and confidence. And I have to say to the First Minister that this was not helped by the confusion generated by the Cabinet Secretary for Health at the weekend, confusion for businesses, workers and communities about whether or not the Level 4 restrictions will end on Friday. So, can the First Minister give us a clear assurance today in Parliament that there will be no last-minute Midlothian-style U-turns later this week and that businesses, workers and communities, especially those in all Tier 4 areas, can today all plan for an easing of the lockdown on Friday? First Minister. I know Richard Leonard's perfect when it comes to his public communications, but the rest of us are, are mere mortals in, in these matters. The Health Secretary communicated something on Sunday that she reflected was not as clear as it should have been and immediately clarified it. I think that's a reasonable thing uh, to do, but I'm sure, I'm sure we'll all continue... I'm sure we'll all continue to take lessons uh, from, from Richard uh, Leonard. Uh, on the substantive issues that Richard Leonard... 
I'm on the substantive issues that Richard Leonard had raised, yes, uh, applying a level system is complex. It would be, frankly, much easier just to put the entire country into a national set of restrictions. Much easier, but also fundamentally wrong, in my view, because the differing levels of prevalence do not justify that. So we deliberately, and I think rightly, go through a very complex process every week of judging what level is best for each area. And that is informed uh, to a, a large extent by the indicators that we publish every Tuesday. But as I've said from uh, the, the first day that uh, we, we published this levels approach, it also has to involve some contextual judgment. So if you take three uh, local authority areas that are coming out of level four on uh, Friday, uh, Stirling, South Ayrshire and uh, Western Bartonshire, if you look just at the indicators, then yes, you can make a case they should go straight to level two. Actually, I think that would be uh, an overly risky thing to do at this moment in time, uh, to take an area directly from level four to level two. The easing up uh, could very quickly send these areas into reverse. And therefore, I think it's better, steadier, and probably in the longer term uh, interests of these areas to take them more steadily down the level. See, these are the judgments we make, and people can you know, decide whether or not they agree with these, but they are judgments that are being made for the best possible reasons, uh, trying to get areas to the best uh, possible outcomes. And Argyll and Butte, I, I've gone uh, into this in my statement. If you again look on the face of it, Argyll and Butte has had a very, very sharp increase in cases, but we know there is one very big, significant, Jackie Bailey will be well aware of it, workplace outbreak in Argyll and Butte. And that is what lies behind the figures, not wider community transmission. So if we were to take Argyll and Butte up a level for that reason, we would be putting the wider population under levels of restrictions that are not merited because we know exactly what lies behind those figures. So these actually, these actually are the complex decisions we are taking to try to make sure that what uh, results uh, from those decisions is proportionate and as targeted as possible. And we'll continue to take those decisions uh, to the best of our ability. I understand in particular the frustration that the City of Edinburgh will feel. The Cabinet agonised over uh, a couple of these decisions, Aberdeen and Aberdeenshire this morning, and also the City of Edinburgh. But there has been a rise in cases in recent days. There is a, right, if you look at the breakdown of today's cases, uh, the number in Lothian, I think from memory, is second only to Glasgow today. So again, there is just a need for some caution there. The last thing we want to do, and you know, all governments right now are struggling with these decisions, but we see in some parts of the UK cases starting to rise again. Uh, that may happen in Scotland over the next few weeks as we ease up. We cannot guarantee it won't. But to try to mitigate against that is why we are taking a cautious approach. And uh, lastly, on uh, Richard Leonard's uh, characterisations of last-minute U-turns, I, I mean, I just need to remind him again, we are dealing with an infectious and unpredictable virus. Uh, all of these areas will come out of Level 4 on Friday. But we have to remain flexible in the face of this virus. If I stood here right now and said, no matter what happens with the trajectory of this virus, we will not change any of our decisions, then people across Scotland should take a very, very dim view of that, because I wouldn't be doing my job properly in trying to keep the country as safe as I possibly can. You're listening to The Week in Holyrood. I'm Charles Fletcher. And coming up in the next half hour... Hires and advanced hires are cancelled because of COVID. And the MP who claims Scotland is being shafted, yes, that's his term, by the UK government. Scotland's Education Secretary John Swinney has cancelled next year's hires and advanced hires because of the coronavirus pandemic. He says the decision is based on disruption already caused by the virus rather than any lingering safety concern. The move means teachers will assess students to help achieve their final grades. I'm therefore announcing today there will be no higher or advanced higher exams in 2021. Instead, we will adopt the new model that has been developed and base awards on teacher judgment of evidence of learner attainment. This is safe, it is fair and it better recognises the reality of the disruption so many pupils have had to their learning in the course of the last few months. I have taken action previously to support schools to respond to COVID with additional investment of £135 million, which includes the recruitment of more than 1,400 additional teachers and temporarily suspended inspections. However, 
In acknowledgement of the additional workload of assessment of national qualifications in this unique academic year in the absence of exams, I intend to make an exceptional one-off payment to teachers and lecturers who are critical in assessing and marking National 5, higher and advanced higher courses this year. We will progress this urgently with partners and employers, including discussing when and how the payment will be delivered. In addition, I would ask that secondary schools prioritise all remaining in-service daytime for, to, to work together on this alternative model of certification for national qualifications. Many schools still have two or three of the five annual in-service days left. Presiding officer, I will not stake the future of our higher pupils, whether they get a place at college, university, training or work, on a lottery of whether their school was hit by COVID. Exams cannot account for differential loss of learning and could lead to unfair results for our poorest pupils. This could lead to pupils' futures being blighted through no fault of their own. That is simply not fair. Education is the greatest antidote to poverty that we have. That is why we have sought to protect learning even in the midst of a pandemic. We pledged to keep people safe. We pledged to protect schools, colleges and universities and to keep them open. And we pledged to fairly recognise the hard work and the achievement of all. I believe the measures I have announced today make good on all of those pledges. The Scottish Government is coming under pressure on two industrial fronts. The future of the Bifab business in Fife and the Western Isles and the building of two ferries for Carmack in Inverclyde. First, Bifab. The steel fabrication company went into administration last week, endangering hundreds of jobs. The company failed to secure new contracts and both the Scottish and UK governments say they can no longer guarantee support funding under state aid rules. Scotland Office Minister Douglas Duguid says an inquiry should now be held. And a Holyrood committee has defined the Scottish Government's procurement of two new ferries for Carmack as a catastrophic failure. The Ferguson Yard in Inverclyde was due to deliver the ferries by 2018 at a cost of £97 million. They won't now be completed until 2023 and at double the original cost. Lib Dem leader, Willie Rennie. Two two ferries at Ferguson's, 100% over budget, at least four years late, with desperate island communities still missing out. Taxpayers losing over £100 million. Workers let down by catastrophic management failure in a company owned by this government. And by fab, the First Minister boasted to the workers she's saved their jobs, but I suspect she won't be back to hand out their P45s. Now they will only be able to watch as the wind farm is built off the coast of Fife. The government's industrial strategy is failing just when workers need it most. So what is the new plan to revitalise our yards? And please do not tell me there's another working group. If the SNP's working groups created work, we'd have full employment by now. Um, on BIFAB, three years ago, I think three years ago, uh, right now, uh, it is because of the action this government took that BIFAB did not close and go into administration back then. We have worked hard, uh, invested heavily, become a minority uh, shareholder in BIFAB to try to secure a future for the yard. Uh, unfortunately, we reached the, the limit uh, of our uh, ability legally to provide support to the yard uh, and it has uh, unfortunately gone into, the company has gone into administration, but we will continue to work uh, to secure, if we possibly can, a future for that. And I'm sorry Willie Rennie doesn't like the reality of how you have to work through things in government, but there are issues around uh, the renewable supply chain that I'm afraid does involve us getting around the table, not least with the UK government, who still hold so many of these powers, to try to get a sustainable position where our supply chain win uh, more of the benefits of the renewables potential we have and the government will continue to do the hard work uh, involved in that. Uh, and as far as Ferguson's is concerned, in terms
terms of management failures, the, the management failures, uh, in my view, were before the government took the yard uh, into public ownership. In fact, that's why we had to take the yard into public ownership. Uh, and if we hadn't, again, if we hadn't stepped in to do that, all of the jobs at Ferguson's would have been lost. Since the government took Ferguson's into public ownership, there have been 139 jobs actually created uh, there. So there are more uh, workers uh, working at Ferguson's now uh, than when we took the yard into public ownership. So none of these issues are easy. Uh, none of them uh, offer up uh, straightforward solutions, but we are determined to work uh, as hard as we can to secure uh, places like Bifab and Ferguson's and make sure uh, that we do the hard work to secure supplies of work for these places that unfortunately do mean us getting other people around the tables. Back to Brexit and to the House of Commons. The Westminster leader of the SNP, Ian Blackford, used unusual language in the chamber this week when he accused the Prime Minister of shafting Scotland. Let's head up to Scotland to the leader of the SNP, Ian Blackford. Ian Blackford. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Yesterday, by this government's own admission, it was confirmed that Northern Ireland is getting the best of both worlds, access to the EU single market and customs union. This is great news for businesses in Northern Ireland, but at least Scotland, who also voted to remain, dealing with the hardest of Brexits. What is good for Northern Ireland, Mr Speaker, is surely good enough for Scotland. Why is Scotland being shafted by this double dealing? Can the Prime Minister explain to Scottish businesses why this is fair? Prime Minister. Uh, Mr Speaker, in common with the whole of the rest of the United Kingdom, uh, Scotland will benefit from the subst- uh, and, uh, in some substantial uh, access of devolved powers for, for Scotland uh, and will benefit from from the uh, the regaining of money, borders and laws. And as I never tire of telling uh, my friend, the gentleman opposite, in spite of all his uh, his jeering, Mr Speaker, Scotland will take back control of colossal quantities of fish, which I think is something that the people of of Scotland uh, deserve to be able uh, to exploit uh, for the advantage of those communities. Ian Blackford, second question. Mr Speaker, the Prime Minister can spin all he likes but everyone can now see the total contempt this UK government holds for Scottish interest. Northern Ireland gets a single market and customs union. We get nothing. Members of his Scottish branch office told him how unfair and damaging it would be to deny Scotland's access to the EU single market and customs union, whilst at the same time delivering it for Northern Ireland. Ruth Davidson even said that such an act would undermine the integrity of the United Kingdom. The former Scottish Tory constitution spokesperson said it would be the end of the union. They, along with the former Scottish secretary, said that if this were to happen, they would all resign. So, Mr Speaker, since the Prime Minister is ready to sell out Scotland's interests with his Brexit deal, does he expect to receive these resignation letters from Baroness Davidson or her cohorts before or after he travels to Brussels tonight? Uh, well, I think, Mr Speaker, the only, only reasonable answer to that question is I think it's highly unlikely that those letters will uh, arrive. And I think he, he does gross injustice to, uh, to Scotland, uh, to the future of Scotland, uh, which, will, which will be assured within the single market of the United Kingdom. And I believe, in spite of the slight negativity I detect from him, uh, I believe uh, will, uh, Scotland, as along with the rest of the UK, will benefit from a very strong trading relationship with our friends and partners across the Channel whatever the circumstances, whatever the terms we reach tonight. The most powerful man in the country is someone you may not even have heard of. Meet Peter Murrow, Chief Executive of the SNP, a formidable election campaigner and winner. He's also married to the most powerful woman in the country, Nicola Sturgeon. Mr Murrow has appeared before the Holyrood Inquiry into the handling of complaints against the former First Minister, Alex Salmond. Peter Murrow denies he was part of a plot to ensure the downfall of Mr Salmond. Those claims are not true, he says. At this week's hearing, Murdo Fraser, Conservative, Mid-Scotland and Fife, questioned Mr Murrow on what he knew about a meeting in his own home between Nicola Sturgeon and Alex Salmond. I want to ask you about two specific items that you cover in your written evidence to the committee. And the first of that is in relation to the meetings that the First Minister held with Mr Salmon, which were on the 2nd of April, the 7th of June and the uh, 14th of July 2018. 
and the meetings on the 2nd of April and the 14th of July were held in your home. Now, what was your understanding of the, the capacity in which the First Minister held those meetings with Mr Salmon? Well, I wasn't at home, um, and um, I, you know, I wasn't aware of the capacity in which she was having the meetings. So you weren't in the House at the time? I wasn't at, the, I wasn't at home at either meeting. Right, OK, thank you. And um, I think the third meeting took place at SNP conference on the eve of an SNP conference, and I suspect I was busy elsewhere. Okay. Um, but, you know, I wasn't at home on the two occasions where um, the meeting took place. Okay, because one of the things we're trying to understand is uh, what was the nature of these meetings? Um, we heard evidence last week from John Summers, who's the First Minister's uh, uh, Principal Private Secretary, that if these had been government meetings, they would have been in the ministerial diary and notes would have been kept, and that wasn't the case. So uh, th I think a reasonable assumption would be that these were meetings held in the First Minister's capacity as leader of the SNP. And if, you, if we read the, uh, the First Minister's submission, she makes reference to the, the meeting, first of all, the meeting uh, on the uh, 2nd of April, uh, how, uh, as party leader, she considered it important to find out whether Mr Salmon might be about to resign uh, from the SNP. Uh, and then in relation to the meeting on the uh, 14th of July, she says again she was anxious uh, as party leader to understand whether his handling of this matter was likely to become public in the near future. So would it be reasonable to assume, therefore, that these were meetings held in her position as leader of the SNP? Well, I think her position, as she sets out, is, is reasonable. I think the nature of the meeting you know, is really for her to say... But, you know, it, it, it seems to make sense in, in what I've read of her submission that um, her impression of what the meeting was about, you know, altered when the discussion happened. So, um, you know, it, that seems a reasonable um, version of events that she sets out in her own written submission. Mm -hmm. OK, thank you. Um, because you say in your submission that you didn't discuss these meetings with Nicola. And yet you're the chief executive of the SNP. Surely if this was a SNP matter that was being discussed, would that not have been brought to your attention? Um, well, Nicola meeting with Alec wasn't a, you know, wasn't a big, you know, um, you know it was a, not an uncommon event, shall we say. I mean, it's, it, it wasn't anything unusual. It could have been about any matter as far as, you know, I wasn't really aware that um, he was coming to the House on the first occasion. Um, you know, it... it and it doesn't strike me as anything unusual. It was they met, they spoke on the phone. I mean, it, it wasn't anything out of the ordinary. So when were you first told about the nature of these meetings? Um, well, at the time it became public knowledge. I mean, that's, you know, I mean, that's the, you know, whatever it is, the 25th of August or thereabouts. The following year. So, so, so the leader of the SNP didn't at any point think to tell the chief executive of the SNP that there was a looming problem with the former leader of the SNP and the former First Minister of Scotland that might end up in the public well, domain. But I think that the, the issue is that the, the issue that was raised with Nicola at the time was a Scottish government matter. Um, and, you know, that's, you know, Scottish government business is not for me. I mean, it's, you know, you know, it's the, every, every single day, Scottish government business is not really to be on a daily basis. Um, you know, Nicola, it's a very confidential process. She's been a minister for a very long time, and we just don't talk about government business. Yes, but you say it's government business, but you know, I think one thing we are now clear about was that these meetings were not conducted on government business. You know, they were not in the ministerial diary. There were no notes taken. Uh, in her own submission, Nicola Surgeon suggests that these were party matters that were being discussed. The, the, you know, these were either government meetings or they were party meetings. Well, I think, to be fair, what she sets out in the evidence is, is, is the case of prior to the meeting, she thought it was about a party matter. And once Alec told her what the meeting was about, then it became something else. Well, that might have been the case for the first meeting, but surely the subsequent meetings it would, would have been obvious what the matter being discussed was. The Scottish Government matter. Well, I think, I think 
you know, there, there's a degree of confusion here about whether these were, were government business meetings or whether these were party business meetings, and I don't think you're helping us to clear that up. Well, but, I mean, Nicola sets it out in her own written submission, okay. and she will be in this chair very shortly, okay. so you can ask her directly. OK, thank you. Peter Murrow may be recalled to the inquiry later. Both Nicola Sturgeon and Alex Hammond are expected to be called in the new year. Now to this week's session of questions to the First Minister. Here's Scottish Conservative Group Leader at Holyrood, Ruth Davidson. On Tuesday, the Chief Executive of the SNP, Peter Murrell, gave evidence under oath to the Parliamentary Committee investigating the Scottish Government's botched handling of harassment allegations against Alex Salmond. That evidence plainly contradicted the First Minister's own version of events. So whose story does the First Minister find most believable? Peter Murrell's or her own? First Minister. Um, I've already set out uh, the reasons for and circumstances of my meeting with Alex Salmond in written evidence. In a few weeks' time, I will answer questions in person to the committee uh, on these matters. Uh, and the fact is, only I can do that. Only I can set out the circumstances, the reasons for uh, the decisions that I have made. The fact of the matter is, my husband had no role in these meetings. He has no role, had no role in the matters under investigation by the committee. Um, Ruth Davidson might want to attack my husband uh, and use him as a weapon against me. People will draw their own conclusions about that, but it doesn't change the basic fact of the matter that he had no role in these issues. Ruth Davidson. Presiding officer. I'm asking about this because a group of women who came forward were utterly let down by the First Minister's government, and the fallout from that is still going on. And if the First Minister doesn't want to answer for the consequences of her government's actions, then shame on her. And, Presiding Officer, like many members of this Parliament, I am in awe of the First Minister's ability to believe that two completely opposing versions of events can somehow be explained away so easily. So let's get back to the evidence that was given to a parliamentary committee. And in his evidence, Mr Murrell said, under oath, that the issue that was raised with Nicola at the time was a Scottish Government matter. However, the First Minister has repeatedly claimed that the meetings were in a party-stroke-personal capacity. These statements are clearly contradictory. They cannot simply both be correct. So, First Minister, which one of them is in fact true? First Minister. The thing is, Ruth Davidson is wrong in what she opened that question with. I do want to answer. Um, I haven't yet had the opportunity to sit before the committee and answer. I will get that opportunity in a few weeks. And not only am I obliged to do that, uh, but I'm keen to do that. I have set out uh, the answers to the questions that Ruth Davidson has asked me in my written evidence. I've set out uh, what I thought. Uh, might uh, raise immediate uh, implications for my party in the meeting I had with Alex Salmond and why that turned out not to be the case. Uh, after that, my priority was protecting the confidentiality and the integrity of the process. Now, the committee will have the opportunity to question me on that, and it's right and proper they do so. It is because I do care about the implications of this, both for women who came forward with complaints and for any women who might feel the need to come forward with complaints in the future. This is an inquiry into an investigation of sexual harassment, and that is why we should all treat it seriously. Uh, but those who choose instead to indulge wild conspiracy theories, I think, make it less likely, rather than more likely, that we learn the lessons of that. But the fact of the matter is, it is for me to answer, because I am the leader of this government. My husband is not a member uh, of my government. He had no role in these matters. It is for me to answer, and that's exactly what I will do. Ruth Davidson. Presiding officer, under oath, the chief executive of the SNP, as the First Minister has said was her husband, I was using his professional term, um, says the meetings were government business, business. But in written testimony, the head of Scotland's government says they were SNP business. And Nicola Sturgeon seems to think that all of our heads button up the back here, because here's what we're being asked to accept. That the chief executive of the SNP popped his head round the door to find the First Minister of Scotland coincidentally his wife, her predecessor, Alex Salmond, his chief of staff, her chief of staff and Mr Salmond's lawyer, all sitting unannounced in his living room. And he never asks a single question 
then or since of what that's all about. And this morning, we now learn that Angus Robertson, a former deputy leader to Nicola Sturgeon, was told 11 years ago of alleged inappropriateness by Mr Salmond. 11 years. And I take it the First Minister's line is that she had no idea about that either. Another allegation that just passed her by. Does she really think that sounds plausible? And is it seriously what the First Minister is asking us to believe? First Minister. Yes, because it happens to be the truth. And that may not... That, that may not suit uh, what Ruth Davidson wants to be the situation, but I'm afraid that is the situation. And on the issue of uh, conversations or lack of conversations between me and my husband, um, I, I sometimes wonder if the opposition here is revealing more about themselves than they are about me. And I, you know, I heard the reaction across the chamber. The fact of the matter is I am First Minister of Scotland. I deal with confidential matters every single day of my life. These range from national security matters through to market-sensitive commercial uh, matters and a whole range of things in between. Um, I don't gossip about these things even to my husband. I am the First Minister of the country, not the office gossip, and I take my responsibilities in that role extremely seriously. Labour's Richard Leonard. This is about more than just the city of Edinburgh. It is about transparency and it is about public trust and confidence. Because the point is this, by overriding recommendations based on the data available and the advice of her own public health experts, the First Minister risks losing the trust and confidence of the public. The government too often appears to assume that people will act in an irresponsible way. And that assumption is bringing businesses in Edinburgh and across the country to breaking point. The five-tier system was supposed to give people and businesses certainty and clarity. But we are seeing a return to arbitrary and ad hoc decision-making. Decisions like the one this week appear to be a political decision rather than a scientific decision. Will the First Minister accept that this not only undermines her stated commitment to limiting economic harms, it erodes public confidence in the government's message, and so, in the end, it will deter compliance with it? First Minister. There's only one person in this exchange being irresponsible, and frankly, presiding officer, that is not me. I mean, let's just take a step back and reflect on how utterly ridiculous the content of Richard Leonard's questions to me there just was. I'm taking political decisions against the City of Edinburgh Council, the City of Edinburgh Council that is led by an SNP politician. <laughs> Why on earth would I be doing that? I'm taking decisions, apparently politically, that he himself has said are unpopular. Why would I want to take decisions that are unpopular when there is no, if there was no need to do that? I've set out very clearly the situation in Edinburgh and why it is really important that we don't ease restrictions when we have a rising trend of infections and test positivity in the city of Edinburgh. Because if we did that, in a couple of weeks' time, I would be standing here talking about a situation in Edinburgh that had run out of control and us perhaps having to put Edinburgh into level four. And do you know who would be first in the queue to attack me for it then? One Richard Leonard, I suspect. So I will continue to take these decisions as the whole government will as safely and as responsibly as we possibly can. And I don't assume that people act irresponsibly. Uh, I am full of gratitude and appreciation uh, for the responsible way the public of Scotland have acted throughout this pandemic. Uh, but I do assume that an infectious virus takes every opportunity we give it to spread. And that's why we have got to limit interactions to keep that virus under control. And keeping that virus under control is about protecting health, is about protecting the NHS, it's about saving lives, but it is also uh, fundamentally about protecting businesses and the economy as well. And I will continue to take these decisions in the responsible way that I think the people of this country have a right to expect. And that's the Week in Holyrood.